Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 20th, 2020, famous uh, 420 day for those that participate in that particular activity. Uh, but it is a Monday for us, and we are here to do uh, a Monday show. But we were not going to do a listener's question show today. Um, I worked a lot this weekend. I have a lot I want to talk about that I did this weekend, and I'm also beat. Uh, it, was a, it was a long weekend. I uh, put a lot of hours in, a lot of work in, and uh, it's just easier to do a show like this. So hopefully you guys will give me a pass on that. Um, Here's what we're going to talk about today, though. It's like a two-parter. I'm going to talk to you about some new things with COVID, uh, COVID, and I'm going to I'm not going to get real specific into details, but I will give you some resources you can look up and verify this stuff for yourself. But there's a lot of things going on there, um, with a lot of things I've been saying for a long time about this, and uh, the quote I, I did a few weeks ago by Buddha keeps coming up in my social media activities around this, and it, that that quote is. Uh, Three things cannot be hidden for long, the sun, the moon, and the truth. And a lot of the truth about this is coming out, and it's not some big government conspiracy, and it's not a 5G bioweapon and things like that. Um, I'm not really going to talk about it today. I am not concerned or even surprised, but somewhat angered by the credible reports of the fact that this may have been released from um, a, a, a bio laboratory in Wuhan. Um, I don't believe, and the sane, rational evaluation of this doesn't seem to indicate that this thing was released as a bioweapon. It's, it's more along the lines of incompetence. I guess I will throw a little bit about that in when we cover this. Um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter in how we possibly deal with China going forward, of course. But to you, right now, in your home or doing your job or worried about your loved one's we have the problem that we have, which is how we've always come at prepping. But the problem may not be as big as we think it is, and it's still a big problem. And, and that'll all make sense. I want to talk a little bit about protecting yourself um, as we begin to go through some flux here, as we begin to reopen the economy. And I want to talk about why we have to. There's no, well, I don't know if we... No, I, no we have to reopen the economy, especially in a country as diverse as large and as, um, as, as, as spread out as the United States is. There is no reason to have the entire United States locked down. It doesn't make any sense. This is in Italy. We are not Italy. Um, Texas dwarfs Italy as a single state. And Texas has very few cases relative to our population. I'm sitting here right now looking at the Texas COVID official map it's the only thing I will use at the state level because they do one update a day and everything is concise and to the point. Texas has a total of 19,458 cases, which sounds like a lot, but there are 7 million people in Dallas-Fort Worth. There are 6-plus million people in Houston. You, you see where that goes real fast, right? Like Our population is as big or bigger than New York. There's somewhere comparable to New York. And we have less cases in total than they have had in individual days. And that's why those two places need to be handled differently. But the more important number in Texas 
19,400 cases, 5,706 recoveries. Um, I, I, I've been running some numbers tracking Texas, and I'll just pull my spreadsheet open real quick on this. Um, today's number, so this is yesterday's new reported cases, was 535 new cases in the state of Texas. I think Texas has 29 million people, 535 new cases. But the growth rate of active cases was 163. When you take out the new, yesterday we had, uh, I don't track individual recoveries, but we went from 5,334 recoveries to 5,706 recoveries, just under 400 recoveries. Well, that gets backed out of that new number. So our, our case load grew by 163. Our hospital load grew by zero. I, I have a feeling that maybe that number wasn't updated um, because it was the exact same number as the day before. So maybe that number didn't get updated. I'm doing a refresh rate now. It's, nah, it still says 1411. Um, but our overall hospital um, load has been going down. Um, we had, for instance, on the 10th, we had almost 1,600 people in Texas hospitals. Right now we have about 1,400. So our hospital load has been going down. Um, our peak dates have passed. There's just no reason to handle Texas the way that we handle New York. That doesn't mean you can just tell everybody to go swap spit in Texas and not worry about it. But I'm going to talk about that. I'm also going to talk about some farm updates. I got two systems I've been working on a long time, finally finished this weekend. I got them planted. I got a video out on it. I got five things I'm excited about growing. I'm going to, and I'm going to do uh, what would Jack do differently? Seven years into running this property, if I knew everything I knew now and I moved in today and I wanted to establish an orchard, I just wanted a fruit orchard, what would I do? And it is so simple compared to some of the things I've done. It definitely is something we should talk about. So, And it's not something I haven't done. But I've never said, like, I'm going to put these 24 trees here, and this is how I'm going to manage them. And that's exactly what I would do if I moved in today to do that. And I think it'll, be, it'll, it'll shock you with how simple it is. And you'll go, well, I've seen him do that. But again, we haven't stacked it all together in one simple system before. So let's get into it. Let's start out with a quote. Uh, this was I, I was on Brainy Quote today just kind of randomly going through stuff, and I saw this one and it caught my mind considering the time that we're in. And it says, health is not valued. Health is not valued till sickness comes. And it's by Thomas Fuller. Health is not valued till sickness comes. And this just hits so on the money with some actual good journalism that I saw yesterday on one of the major networks. I don't remember which one it was, but it was like a local news. So it was like an ABC, Fox, CBS, something. But they were talking to an oncologist, you know, a doctor that generally treats cancer, but they were talking to them about COVID and similarities that they've seen in people lately. And all of a sudden, people are concerned with being healthy. And this doctor, she seemed like a wonderful doctor. She said, it, it makes me so sad that when I... She said, I tell somebody, at least once a day, I tell somebody that your life's changing forever. You have a new life. There's the life you had before you had cancer and the life you had after you're told you have cancer. And I tell somebody every day that that, that change has just happened to them. And I hate doing it, but the thing that I hate the most is seeing them all of a sudden want to take care of themselves physically. Because if they would physically take care of themselves before they got to that crisis point, that it's much more likely that they, I wouldn't be giving them that announcement. She said there's so many diseases, different cancers, kidney, liver, cardiovascular. There's so many people that die every year that don't have to die that they could address with lifestyle changes. Well, I'd like to talk to her a little deeper and see what she knows about things like 
ketogenic diets, whether she's a fan or not, because I have a feeling she probably isn't, but she's not wrong. So many of the conditions that we deal with are diet-related. Um, I am so glad that I hit a point in my life where I realized I had to make a change back in August of last year. So I'm not, you know, I'm not quite at a year yet of this change. But I, I want to, you know, it's obvious when you look at a video of me. My wife and I looked at a video from years ago uh, of me with one of my cats. And she's like, my God, your hands look fat. <laughs> you know? And I never realized how big I actually had gotten. And, and there's a video we put out recently where I'm cutting a chicken apart. And the still in it, I'm just kind of standing there in the still. And it almost looks like maybe have, you, have I lost too much weight. And I haven't. But you, you kind of get that, like, whoa, like, wow, you know, thing. So the weight loss is obvious. And the weight loss now is in excess of 50 pounds. 50 pounds is a lot of weight to lose. It's a lot of weight to lose. Puts me in rate just over, over 200 pounds. I was 200 pounds when I was 24 years old. And I was in pretty damn good shape at 24. I was about 195 pounds when I got done with my walk on the Appalachian Trail after I got out of the military. Right, So the, the, the weight is, is an obvious thing. But here's some other things. One, this is something nobody likes to talk about, but I have toenail fungus. And I've done everything from you can think of to deal with it, and, and nothing's ever worked. And I now have almost none. And I, I quit doing anything. I, I don't do anything for it. It just kind of is going away. So what does that tell you about a dietary change, less drinking, better supplementation, uh, better physical activity, if it makes something like a toenail fungus go away. Because it's very hard to understand how something like your, your health and your exercise and all could make a cancer go away, not just make you less likely to get one in the first place. But there's not a lot of difference in the dynamics of making something go away when it's a fungus or a wart or like a skin tag as there is a tumor. It's the body deciding, I'm going to eradicate this. And we are our best medicine. That's, that's something you can quote me on. We are our best medicine. Nothing heals us like ourselves. So I'm not saying that you know just changing your diet will cure cancer. But what I am saying is changing your diet can cure some cancers. And it can certainly prevent cancers. And we're, we're, we're acting hysterical over something that could kill, let's say, 100,000 Americans. But obesity kills a ridiculous number of Americans every year. I was about to give a number I was going to guess at. Let me give you the actual number. How about this fact? I don't want to pay these people to read their study uh, from the Journal of Public Health, but uh, the synopsis is overweight and obesity were associated with nearly one in five deaths, or 18.2% among adults in the United States from 1986 to 2006. And, and I'm telling you, that's, that's, that's a hard reality. That's 20% of people that die. Their death, at least in some level, is attributable to obesity. I, I, I've Since I started doing this um, ketogenic diet, I've, I've heard from people that are like, I, I lost my kidneys due to obesity. Like there's no, I didn't get, you know, quote unquote, some rare kidney disease. I, I ate myself till I destroyed my kidneys, and I'm on dialysis now and hoping to get a kidney. I well, heard from one guy's blind due to obesity. There are over, I do know this number without looking it up, there's over 3 million type 2 diabetics in the United States. 99% can be cured through diet alone in a few months. In a few months. Now, ketogenics, what I do, it's not 
I don't want to turn this into a keto show today. Um, I don't care what you do, but getting yourself healthy is so important. And with COVID, we're finding that is the case. The number one thing that determines whether a person will end up in a hospital with COVID and or on a respirator and or ventilator and or dead, number one thing is age. That's something we can't do a lot about. But I'm going to bring in how that can possibly be an answer to some questions we are not asking but should be here in just a second. But it's age. But you are how old you are. You can't, I mean, we all wish that we could say, hey, you know what, 35. <laughs> 35 would be a good age to just lock in your health at 35. I, I would love to go back to being 35. Not only at 35 was I really healthy, but... Actually, right now, I'm probably physically healthier than I was at 35. But I'll tell you what was different at 35. At 35, if I fell down the stairs and, and, and busted the hell out of myself, in two days, I was, I was better. <laughs> if I fall down the stairs today, I'm laid up for like three weeks. right? So there's just we'd all love to be able to do that. We'd all be able to dial in you know, 28 to 35 years of age would be our physical health for our you know, forever. We can't. But we can change the number two cause. You know, the number two reason, or the number two, what they call a comorbidity is, obesity. If we take age out of the equation, because it stays in the equation when you're older, by the way, but it's obesity. The fatter you are, if you get COVID, the more likely you are to end up in a hospital, on forced oxygen, on a ventilator, or die. There's just... There's just no way around that. It's, there's a, we, have, we have millions of numbers now. We know, we know those. So when they say something like, out of Italy, 99% of the people that died had something else wrong with them, the number one thing, other than age, was they were fat. Numbers out of New York tell us the same thing. So, God, take care of yourselves. Not because there's a pandemic, but because take care of yourself. So here's some things, though, that are huge, and they're already being bent to make you more afraid when they should make you less afraid. There's a lot of new testing coming in, and again, I'll just pick some random articles and link to them in the show notes today. I don't want to get too granular today. But they're testing people, like I covered on Friday, they tested a homeless shelter, 146 people tested positive in one homeless shelter. And 10 days later, only one was in the hospital. Like, it was a hospitalization rate of 1 in 146. If, <laughs> you know, if, if there was another one that popped up and we ended up in somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5%, it still takes the total number of people to go in the hospital and therefore the total number of people that die way, way down. Now, the underlying infection rate and how many people get it and things like New York where you end up with, you know, overloaded hospital systems, it still doesn't make that go away. But it is, it is something we should be looking at and saying maybe we need to do things differently. It also means we need to really be thinking about treating asymptomatic cases to clear the virus as quick as possible. And the, the thing that's done that better than anything else is hydroxychloroquine. And what we have now are doctors that are saying, well, you know, we took like 20 people that were on ventilators and crushed up hydrochloroquine and put it in a feeding tube down their throat because they can't swallow. And, um, well, it didn't seem to really change the death rate much, you think. 
You think, well, first of all, there's a doctor that said three weeks ago out of New York that's been treating people on ventilators. You need to reprogram the way you're using the ventilators. He said you're killing people with ventilators. He also had the opinion that maybe, just maybe, doctors who are not at the bedside of people who have COVID should stop telling doctors who are at the bedside of people with COVID what they should be doing. You know, Fauci, Burke, you know, the two doctors that are always with Trump, I'm going to guess, I could be wrong, but I'm going to guess neither of those doctors have actually treated a patient in any real way for decades. That they are administrators and bureaucrats. They're not, I mean, there are doctors by credential. I'm sure if one of their family members gets sick, they can write them a script and look at them or something. But these people, all these famous doctors, whether they're bureaucrats or celebrities, they're not out doing surgery. They're not out running ventilators. And a lot of people that make policy, they're not doing this either. This doctor said, I don't think we see a pneumonia, a viral pneumonia, as much as we see a viral, a virus causing a blood disorder. They, they could be using ventilators, but they need to change the pressure. It's more about getting oxygen into the blood than forcing the lungs open. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's, it's just one example of we're not listening to the people doing the treatment. And the doctors that are using hydroxychloroquine, that are using it with people long before they need to go to the hospital, are getting really great results. If we start finding these people that are asymptomatic, I got a video for you guys to watch today that's in the, in the show notes today. It's a doctor. He seems like he's Indian or Pakistani or something like that. He seems very, very well informed. By the way, he's recommending Qcertin and zinc as a prophylactic if you're not a doctor, you're not working with a doctor, you can't get a prescription, something like that, like for over-the-counter Qcertin and zinc, along with things like vitamin D, et cetera, stuff that maybe you've heard from me, vitamin C, vitamin D, et cetera. Um, I have a link to that video. Uh he is recommending that healthcare professionals should be on hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic. But he's really concerned. I want you to look about, there's about a 40-something minute video, like 30 minutes of it. He doesn't talk about Qcertin at all. He talks about mostly hydroxychloroquine, how it works, and the feeling of the need to be protecting healthcare workers using this treatment. But also, the critical time between the point where we find the patient and go, they're sick. Let's keep them off a ventilator. Let's keep them out of the hospital. Let's reduce the hospital load and make this person not die. And again, hydroxychloroquine is what this guy has come down on. Uh, and again, we got a doctor treating real patients. And that's, that's so important that we start listening to those people. But the, the asymptomatic rate, yeah, the problem with that is you have people running around that are possibly transmitting the virus that don't know it. But it also dramatically changes the infection rate. And one of the things that I've noted is when we look at the demographics, right? So if we look at case demographics in Texas, for instance, the vast majority of people that are getting the virus at all, they're testing positive, are 20 to 60 years of age. That's the, But the highest number is 40 to 60, 40 to 60. Now, the reason we're finding more of those is we're really working hard to protect people that are in their 70s. Really, really, really. Really, 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 right? Uh, a lot of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s are out working. A lot of them are essential services, so they're out still in the world. But the reality is because we're seeing them. It's because we're seeing them. We're not seeing a tremendous number of cases from 10 to 19 because 
they're either not getting it or because they're asymptomatic. But it's, it, I, I don't think we're seeing a disproportionate number of the 20 to 29-year-olds. I'm looking at that, and uh, there's 354 cases in Texas, and there's uh, 485. That can't be the total number. It has to be like over a week or something. Um, oh, those are case investigations. So if case investigations, 485 versus 354. So it's not like we're not seeing these people that are in that primary age of 20 to 29 to be asymptomatic. So we probably have a lot of asymptomatic cases in older people as well. And it changes everything. And what we've, we found is, for instance, there's that ship, the Navy ship that everybody was on and on about. Oh, it's a ship of death or whatever. Turns out almost none of the symptoms, none of the cases, almost none of the cases are symptomatic. Now, they're all young, healthy sailors, right? But guys... The other thing we're finding out is we're starting to do some an antibody testing. And it's not perfect, but it gives us a good window into things. One antibody test out of California says that it's possible that the case count is underreported by 50 to 80 times. I'm going to say it could be anywhere between two times to 50 times. And we just don't know, somewhere in there. But what that means is we are not really controlling the spread the way we think we are. And that also lines up with something else that's very important to know. The CDC is, is constantly backing further and further away from this whole surface spread. Like, you know, they had the report that came out and said it can get on your shoes and travel around. it. That was in an ICU where the doctor's sitting there surrounded by people with COVID. Surrounded by them. The whole room is full wall to wall or all around the peripheral and a doctor's walking through the middle every day. You think? The sickest of the sickest COVID patients. With doctors treating other COVID patients constantly in and out. It doesn't look like this virus spreads very effectively on surfaces. And I'll tell you why that makes sense. You know, the, 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 the statistic that makes sense there. So we have, you know, a few thousand cases in Dallas-Fort Worth with 7 million people. And we have tens of thousands of cases in New York City with about 8 million people. What's the difference? Pop, what I've been saying from the beginning, population density. How many freaking people there are close together? What's the CDC now saying? Number one way that COVID spreads is close, personal interaction between individuals. It's not so much I sneeze and there's one little speck of my sneeze over here and you touch it and you touch your eye and then you get it. It's that we are breathing the same air for a long period of time. Now, What that means is it's more and more ammunition for reopening the economy with certain social distancing restrictions in place. I went to Lowe's this weekend to get strawberry plants. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. Guess what? Lots of people there. Everybody's staying six feet plus away from each other. About half the people wearing masks, about half the people not wearing masks. But overall, well-ordered. And, you know, we're sitting here in Tarrant, Tarrant County, Texas, where I live, um, has about two million people and 1,200 total cases, not active, because I don't, I, I don't see the recoveries by county on my reporting. But 1,200 out of 2.2 million. There, there is, when, when you start saying that there's a lot more people have it than we know, the denominator's bigger, it spreads more person-to-person -person direct rather than indirect surface contact, yeah, it, it, it's time. But before we, not really before, but there, there's a question, there's some questions we need to be asking. 
And, and one is, why aren't we moving faster on antibody testing? Number two, why aren't we doing more random sample testing? Where we, you know, we, we have a pretty accurate test, it looks like now, fast, 15 minutes. Do you or do you not have COVID? Why aren't we doing more where we just go into a place and just test 200 people that all work in this one place that are essential and see what that number is? I mean, what if we found out, like, the average place that stayed open has, like, 40% infection rate? How much is our lockdown doing then versus how much basic social distancing is really doing? That's important, too. But there's a bigger question in this than all of this. There, the, 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 and I honestly believe not asking this question and not figuring this out is costing us lives. So my buddy Patrick, you know him, Patrick from MT Nice posted a thing about a guy that was an Iron Man. He's an Iron Man. He's also 38 years old. As long as he's 18 years old, 38 years old. And it said COVID almost killed him. Well, he had a really bad case of COVID. He ended up on a, on a ventilator. I mean, he was one of the few people that go on a ventilator and come off a ventilator. It sounded, he had, he had um, hallucinations where he thought he was being uh, trafficked for sex trafficking. Right, His mind made up this narrative to match this bad place he was in. sounded horrible. I, I, I wish it on no one. But, oh, it can get anyone. It can get anyone. That's not, see, that's fear-mongering. So we already know that most people that are in good health at 38, if they get it, it's either really mild or they don't even know they have it. We already know that's the case. So why is it a redneck hippie duck farmer has to ask the question? Why did it get him? He's an Iron Man athlete. He runs triathlons. <sighs> Okay, that doesn't mean he's not immunocompromised. That does not mean he doesn't have a specific immunodeficiency. You can be beefcake, right? You can look great. How many times have you seen a tragic story of a young athlete working so hard and looks so fit, comes down with some kind of weird cancer? Most cancers are the result of some immunodeficiency. If not, we would all get them all the time. We don't. You can't look at a person and say that they're healthy. That's why we use medical testing. If they could just look at you and go, ah, you're good, you'd, you'd walk into your doctor, you go, yeah, you're good, bye. We test blood levels. We test blood pressure. We test all these things. You don't think you can be 38 and an Iron Man and have high blood pressure? Really? You don't think you can? Because, yeah, it happens. It happens. You don't think you can be look really healthy and have diabetes and not know you have diabetes? It happens, too. Less likely there, but maybe. You don't think that a person that can be a triathlete might have a really shitty diet? Because Mark Sesson of Mark's Daily Apple, big, big uh, uh, fan of paleo primal type eating now. He was on the cover of Runner's Magazine in the early 80s, and he said, what nobody knew is I was near death from my health. I was able to run, but I was, I was, I was destroying myself because of the way I was eating. So if he can be so fit that he's on the cover of Runner's Magazine, but he tells you in reality what I was doing was destroying my body, you can't just look at someone. So the question we should be asking, and again, why is it a redneck duck farmer asking this question? What's different about the people it does get, especially the people that don't fit the narrative? They're not fat and they're not old. What's different? That you, what we should be doing, I wish we should be running a full blood panel on, let's say, a 1,000 people who got this disease that are old enough to generally be considered somewhat at risk, 40s, 50s, you know, my age, but didn't get any real problems, full blood panel. Then we take people, especially people that are a little bit in the younger group, 50-ish, get a 1,000 of those that were really, really sick but didn't die, 
run full blood panels. And I mean everything. All the macro and micronutrients, all the cholesterol, everything you can run. The kind of test that Dr. Stevens does. I'm, I work with Dr. Stevens at Green Wisdom Health. He's, he's a chiropractor. He's not even an MD. But he looks at these numbers and he'll say things like, you know, this particular nutrient, I think this is low, even though the official answer from the report is, well, it's normal. Because it's average. That doesn't mean optimal. And then we take a thousand people that die. Specifically, find the people that look to be apparently the healthiest thousand deaths and run full blood panels. And you look at those three groups. And I can almost guarantee you something will stand out. Now, you might have to run more tests than Dr. Stevens does. You might need quite a bit of blood from everybody, but you're drawing it all the time anyway during these, these things. It, it, I, I bet there will be a, a micro or macronutrient. Be, I'm sorry, not a macronutrient. A, a micronutrient, you know, a selenium, zinc, something, that will stand out. And if you run things for other markers, you'll find some marker, some blood marker, some something that sticks out. And if we did that, then we could address that. But no one's going to do it, so all we can try to do is be as healthy as possible. Like, but why am I asking that question? And no one else is. What's different? Why we don't? And the answer the doctors give is not an acceptable answer. We don't know. You could. Did you even look? So this is where this leads to. We are reopening the economy. We are doing it. It's going to be done in stages, and it's going to look different in different parts of the country. But here's the next part of that. We have to. This is one of the things people are like, we're going to be locked down for 18 months. And I'm like, shut up, stupid. The reason I'm saying that is if this doesn't go away at all, and if you know, 200,000 people are going to die if we reopen the economy, we're still going to reopen the economy. We have to. We have to. If you want to look at it like war, is then an acceptable loss. The answer is yes. If you're going to look at it like war, if you're going to look at it like, yeah, yeah, okay, what's the percentage of the population is that? And how many of those people's would be, people would have died within 12 months anyway? How many of those people were already at the edge of death? I know it sounds heartless, but there's a point where when you're evaluating the impact on the entire country, but what if it was your loved one? Who says it isn't? Who says it's not going to end up being me? There's still a point where you have to just say, okay, this sucks. Here's what we can do, but here's what we cannot continue to do. Because shutting down the economy for 45 days, 60 days, we can do this. I know that people don't think we can, but we can. And we can see what disruption we can do to this, and when we can slowly ramp things back up and go back into some sort of thing approaching normal. We can do that without destroying the world, without creating the, the, the greatest depression of all time. We can do that. We can't do it for six months. We can, damn sure can't do it for 18 months. It cannot be done. The biggest thing that is threatening the United States right now and most of the developing world is what's known as economic illiteracy. People that think you would just stay home, you are economically illiterate. If we do this for four months nationwide, there will be food shortages like you've never seen before in your life. Eventually, those systems will start to fall apart. But they're essential. It doesn't matter. Those systems will start, all these systems will start to fall apart eventually. And then the doctors that are screaming, you don't understand, I've intubated more people in this week than I did in a year. Okay, yeah, you're going to be stealing with people getting shot, stabbed, beaten, murdered in their own homes. 
That's what happens to a society that completely breaks down. And you know what? It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen for, for two reasons. One, the government's aware of this. The government's put as much intervention as it, as it is comfortable with in place, and it will begin to back off. Now, there will be hot spots like New York City that they have to stay on, but it's going to be kind of the big one. And that's because you were dumb and you built a city with 8 million people in 300 square miles. We're going to have to reevaluate population density in how we plan communities in the future because community planners love high density. It's efficient. It's also a huge risk. But we have to. And if the government doesn't do it, people will do it. These first uh, protests, just the beginning. There's a point where people just say, you know what, I'm going, I'm going out to eat. I'm going back to work. I'm opening my restaurant. I'm going to open my factory. And when one or two do it, a governor can say, well, I'll shut your power off or we'll send somebody out to arrest you. When everybody does it, you can't. And people have been really good about this. I'm actually surprised at how well this has worked. And I think people are like, listen, if this is what we have to do, this is what we have to do, but we have a limit. And I think that's why you're seeing in states like Texas where there was a protest here, but it was really not a big protest. Most Texans are like, you know what? You're talking about beginning right now to start opening up various things. You're talking about being significant by the end of the month. We know the rules. We see why you're doing what, we're, what you're doing. This makes sense. We're on board. Most of this lockdown really has been voluntary in that people have obeyed it. Just because they said you had to doesn't mean that you can make people do it. In states like Michigan, where you have that governor who needs her head examined, in fact, she just uh, she needs to be recalled. And I have other ideas that I won't say because I could get arrested for saying them. I think, right? They'll call it insurrection or something. But like, I'm just going to say, like our colonists when they had people that overstepped their boundaries in the bureaucratic world, they had some solutions for those uh, as we led up to the revolution. Um, who said things like, well, you can go to Walmart, but you can't buy seeds or a garden hose. I mean, this is just stupid. Well, people in Michigan are pissed. And Democrats in Michigan are pissed. The ones with common sense, anyway. Um, we're going to do this. So then the question becomes, how do you keep yourself safe? Well, the number one thing I think you can do If you are a person who right now is working from home, I'd say until we get a feel for how this is going to go, talk to your employer. I don't want to come back. And that's what they're supposed to do anyway. If you are a person who works for yourself and can work from home, keep doing that. And minimize how much you go out. I think that makes sense. And then be smart about where you go and when you go there as this reopens. Next, take care of yourself physically. Um, again, I can't prescribe anything. I'm not a doctor. I'm not claiming anything works. But um, my regimen that I've recommended that might be helpful, maybe, is a combination of Qcertin, green tea extract, and zinc. And it's because both Qcertin and green tea extract are ionophores for zinc. They help zinc get in the cells. And when you put zinc inside cells, you disrupt replication of RNA replicating viruses. COVID is an RNA replicating virus. It hijacks your RNA and it uses it to make more of itself. It's the simplest way to understand it. You can take zinc like crazy, but it has a hard time getting inside your cells. When you take it in conjunction with an ionophore like Qcertin or green tea extract, it helps it get into your cells. I have links to where you can find all of those today 
in the show notes. So you can check those out. Again, I'm not claiming anything, but what I will say is every doctor or scientist that's reviewed my uh, research on this has said, yeah, that, that, that should be helpful. And if you don't exceed recommended dosages, it can't help you. So be careful, especially with like the zinc. Uh, the doctor in New York, the Jewish doctor, is using a very high load of zinc during treatment only in conjunction with hydroxychloroquine and zithromycin. And it's only like a five-day regime he's doing with people for that. Don't go taking 250 milligrams of zinc a day. That's, that is not a good standard dose of zinc. That's a acute response level. So look up. I, I, I can't even give dosages. You have to look up dosages. I will also say be careful with green tea extract. It's really easy to OD on green tea extract and make yourself jittery as hell from the ca caffeine on top of it. Um, but know the limits and take them in combination. So I'll just tell you what I do. I take because you can only take so much zinc and only so much green tea, I take my Q-certain green tea and zinc every morning and I take a second dose of Q-certain in the evening uh, before I go to bed. Uh, and I, t I keep in the maximum limit. I'm on the dose my doctor had me for the Q-certain anyway. Just physically take care of yourself. Supplement, including the stuff that I recommend, plus, you know, vitamin D, vitamin B, uh, vitamin E, all of these, these, and vitamin C. I mean, these are all things that have always been known by medical science to be useful. Maybe not guarantee of anything, but useful. And, and I would say something else about the B B12. I don't have any research on this or any knowledge of this, except that I do know the number one vitamin that as people age, they're less able to absorb is B12. And the more you move toward a junk food diet, the more deficient in B12 you become on top of it. So obesity and age, there's a correlation. That does not equal causation, but... You know, I take supplemental B12 anyway. So that's all I got on COVID for the day. I guess that could have almost been a show by itself. But there's just, I just feel like there's some really important things there that we need to be considering. And again, the fact that there are a lot more people that have had this or have this than, than the official number has always been known, but we're beginning to see it might be massive. That one study in California uh, said it could be, there was something like 1,100 cases reported, and they said there could be like 30,000 or more in the same county based on their spot checking for antibodies. Now, the antibody tests, uh, we're still waiting for something to be really, really accurate, but I think we actually do, we have accurate and we have sort of accurate, and they're both being used at the same time, so we've got to be careful there. But just understand, like, if we, even if we went out right now and went into the middle of a city and just said, hey, we're going to test people for COVID, who wants to test? Who wants to be part of this? And we just randomly tested 2,000 people. The number we get is not that informative. It's not that informative because did they have it? Well, if they had it but they don't have it anymore, they're still going to be negative. That's the problem with this idea. Like I heard one politician, she was going, and I, I won't be happy until anybody anywhere, symptoms or not, can get a test whenever they want and have the results immediately. Okay, so what you're setting up is a situation where you can never be satisfied, and you know that's what you're doing because that's not doable. We have 330 million people in this country. You can't get a test for COVID every day. And unless you get a test every day, if you're asymptomatic, it doesn't matter. You got tested last week, so what? It's not an STD. You know, if you, if you got tested last week, you have one partner, they got tested last week. You, this week, you haven't, neither of you have never cheated on each other. You know that you're still clean. It doesn't work that way. 
So the only test that would give us a real indicator would be to test for people that have it and test antibodies. Do both tests on that sample at the same time. And until we get a way to do that accurately, we're not going to have a real picture. And it, it's, it's going to be, I think it's going to make the postmortem very ugly. People are going to be very angry. And it may create an overreaction of not social distancing and actually lead to a, a rebound. What will lead to a rebound is not opening the economy. What will lead to a new surge is not reopening the economy. It's reopening the economy, but not having people use their common sense with how we reopen the economy. And lying to people doesn't help. All right, let's move on to some farm updates. Um, the better part of the show, I hope. Uh, this weekend, I finished my tomato system, which is made up of seven five-gallon buckets, a single pump, and a 40-gallon sump, and they are running a Kratky... Ebb and flow, aeroponics, uh, deep water system. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. So <laughs> here's what I've got, if you haven't seen the video yet. I've got these seven buckets, they're all on level, because I built the level shelf that they all sit on. And the pump delivers water to each of the seven buckets through a hedge sprinkler. These, if you've ever been to Home Depot or Lowe's, little black ones that screw on the top. If you've ever been out and about and you're like at, a, at like a office park or something and the sprinklers come on and the little sprayers go off that are up on little stands of PVC that's those things, they're just in there upside down and I had them and they're cheap and hey, uh, it basically makes an aeroponics type thing because water's spraying so I put them in there and uh, I, I set the water level so that the plants are not in the water when the system's at rest when you turn the pump on as the overflow runs, the water level comes up And it, it puts the plants in the water. So that's your ebb and flow. And eventually the roots will get down to the water where they'll be in the water whether the water is running or not. That's your deep water. But there'll be an air gap, so there's your cracky. So that's how that all comes together. Uh, it's working really, really well. But I learned something this week. I'm probably running a pump much bigger than I need to for that system. Unlike the other one where I'm running a pump that's barely big enough. So... I had this pump, and it's a, a dirty water pump. And it kicked on, and all of a sudden I could hear the water level was almost empty. And I was like, crap. I mean, that thing should have been good for at least a couple weeks. Plus, I have another tank plumbed to it with a float valve. So I was like, well, the float valve must have got plugged with something. So I went and looked in the reserve tank, and it's empty. So I take the lid off, and it's there's like two, ounce, two, two inches of water down there. So I shut the pump off. And um, where'd the water go? Well, it didn't take me long to figure out. Well, the pipes were apart. So what happened is, since the pump's on a timer, it kicks on and kicks off, kicks on and kicks off. One of the times it kicked on, it blew the dry-fit pipes apart. And it just blew the water out of the top of the tank, which had already happened the cycle before I was in the greenhouse. So it was already empty already, and the timer kicked it back on again and pumped down a little bit of water that came back. So I shut it off, and I had to refill that. So... I'm going to tell you, inside your sumps, there's a big temptation to dry fit things. What I ended up doing, I had some parts in this weekend, too. I glued all those together, so it's all glued together now. But so you can take the pump out and what have you, I put in what's called a union, a PVC union, which basically it's got an O-ring, and you turn one side, and it comes apart. And that way you can take your pump out, you can disconnect, what have you. So I installed a couple different unions in that system for where the refill, refill barrel was and what have you. So that's that's all, all running well now. That's just something to be aware of. That, And I think this is much more likely to happen in a system on a timer than a system on constant run. 
If you put your system together and you turn the pump on, everything kind of tightens up and it just stays there. But if you think about that timer kicks off, timer kicks on, timer kicks off, timer kicks on, timer kicks off, you can wear down, boom. It's almost like an impact. Every time that pump kicks on, poof, all the pressure comes up in the pipes and then drops back down, up and down. So uh, that's just something to be aware of that I thought I'd make it worth. Now, the pipe system was what I put most of the work in this weekend. So now I have... Three 10-foot pipes in the front of my greenhouse. They're, they're drilled with three-inch net pot holes. And the top one overflows to the middle and down to the bottom and back to the sump. Got that installed. Um, thought I did a really good job leveling the pipes. So I turn the system on and I try to set the levels. And it turns out that one little 90-degree thing inside the, the set level turned all the way up. was a perfect level for the first pipe and the second pipe. Third pipe on the, the highest one on the top, water's a little deep on one side and not quite reaching the net pots on the other side. We know what that means, don't we? Pipe's not level. So I'm sitting there looking at the brackets and all like, oh, what a pain in the ass. And it thought occurs to me, it's not that much. So if you've ever seen the little tags, the little plastic tags you write on and like the peppers and you put them in a six pack, I had some of those laying around scrap. The ones with kind of the big top and narrow bottom. So I cut the two tops off and I loosened up the bracket holding the pipe, pushed up on the pipe, and just stuck them between that and the bracket, put the plumbing strap back to tight with the screw gun, boom, level pipe. So that problem was solved. Then Dorothy and I decided, hey, we're going to plant strawberries. So I had gone out, and I bought 15 strawberries from Lowe's, and I started showing her how to wash all the dirt off them because obviously it's a hydro system, not a dirt system. So we had to rinse all the dirt off, and I start realizing, hey, there's like two or three plants in every cup, not one. So I had her washing and separating and me planting. We ended up with 35 plants for the price of 15, which I was feeling kind of ripped off paying $3 a plant for strawberry plants, but I was kind of screwed. I waited late in the year to get them, so I, I paid what they were asking for them. But 35 plants, you know, um, that's... That's not a bad deal now, is it, you know? It ended up being about a dollar and twenty-eight cents a plant that way. So um, what that has me thinking, if you go out and I do this a lot of times when I buy peppers and tomatoes and stuff, if I do buy them, I look at the pot and I look for doubles. So there's like two peppers in one pot. But the key with peppers and tomatoes and all, their roots can get so tangled that you do so much damage separating them that you really it's not worth doing. So what you look for is you look for two peppers or two tomatoes or some other plants, depending on what you're buying, maybe eggplants, that are like, sometimes you'll find them where they're pretty far apart in the pot. Those are usually able to be separated, and they can still be planted. With the strawberries, I realized after we started, I, so I was in a hurry, you know, you're out in COVID time or whatever, and uh, just wanted to get in and get out. I started looking at them like, man, this one has like four in it. If I had gone through them, I bet I could have ended up with 45, 45 plants for 45 bucks, dollar a plant for strawberry plants. Yeah, so that's just something to be aware of, and that could save you some money right there. Um, but the pipe system's installed, and it went from having one pipe of strawberries to two and a half. I've got ten open spots now. I had two of my strawberries, like, we were planting them, and all of a sudden Dorothy goes, those look sad, and they were like, just look dead. Went out this morning, everybody's happy, everybody looks good. So that system's up and running. I did. I do want to tell you something about the pipe-based system. Man, I've seen a lot of people building with 4-inch um, 
PVC pipe on YouTube uh, and in other places. And when I looked at going to like three inch pipe, which would have made it a little less expensive, I just started looking at the root zone and going, you know, strawberries. I don't think there's a big enough root zone there. Um, a lot of other plants, I don't think there's a big enough root zone there. If you're just doing lettuce and arugula, sure, sure. You could go down to probably two inch pipe at that point. But I wanted to use a three inch net cup. You know, a three inch pipe, you're like taking away half the depth of the pipe just with your hole. So a three inch pipe and a four inch, a three inch cup and a four inch pipe, you come down significantly on the sides. You reduce your maximum total depth in that four inch pipe to about three and three quarter inches. I'm probably running about three and a quarter inches of depth. Um, so I, I wanted to go with a bigger pipe. When you look at end caps, fittings, etc., You got, I got a lot more money in that than I thought I would have in it, especially when I had to pay more money for the end caps than I thought I was going to have to, and then build the overflows and all. Um, I don't think it's economical enough to do at a commercial level on any level, and it's why you probably have never seen a significant commercial hydroponics or aquaponics greenhouse running pipe. I mean, pipe to run plumbing, sure, but pipe to run as growing Uh, mechanism. I, I just don't think it makes sense. I think that's why you see so many people using uh, the grow towers and stuff, and a lot of that stuff is built out of the the vinyl fence posts for vinyl fencing. And I think that probably economically makes a lot more sense. Um, additionally, being able to run longer would make more sense. Let's say instead of a 12-foot greenhouse, I had a 24-foot wide greenhouse. I could have built... Twice the system for only how much more money? Let me figure that out for you real quick. $45. Because the pipes are about $14 a piece. So I would have needed one uh, straight coupling. And I could have coupled two together and I could have had a 20-foot run. If I had a 30-foot greenhouse, if I'd built this in my aviary and went all along the back wall, it's 50 feet. I get a... It, it wouldn't have cost hardly any more money because I only need one pump to get the fluid to one point and I let it ca cascade all the way back through and all the fittings, all the ends, all that stuff that costs so much money, um, it, it just it just doesn't get... There's no additional stuff. So I think you need longer runs making more use of gravity if you want to go with the PVC route. But every time you add a layer... In PVC versus length to a layer, your cost, I would estimate, more than doubles. And it's why, again, I just don't think you see anybody building commercial using PVC pipe as your growing medium. It's also heavy and hard to work with. Now, if it's a fixed system, you don't care. But the way most people are doing commercial, they're growing mostly leafy greens and stuff like that. And what they're doing is they take a section and they, they take it out, they clean it, they plant it, and they put it back in. And then it comes out the other side eventually. They harvest it, and they repeat that process. So they're moving those things around. You know, a 10-foot piece of PVC is pretty bulky. It's pretty heavy. It's hard to clean. So I think if you're a hobbyist and you want to build something like I'm doing, what you build is bulletproof. It's just tough as nails. It works really good, but it's expensive. But if you're building a limited size system and once you build it, you're done, you get your money back eventually. If you're going to look at like the micro CSA, small-scale commercial or whatever, I think you need to look to other technologies. Uh, I really do after doing this. Uh, now, I want to just give you a quick, there's like five things I'm really kind of excited to grow with Hydro this year beyond tomatoes. 
Um, one is I plan on growing broccoli rob and seeing if I can get broccoli rob to do well for me going through my summers because I really love block broccoli rob which kind of looks like broccoli. It's a little bit more bitter. It grows like more like shoots than big heads. Uh, but, boy, even it bolts on me as soon as I get into June. So broccoli rob fennel. It's something I've been playing with a lot. Man, I love fennel. And not having to buy it from a store and deal with people who don't know what it is who ask questions about it, uh, so much the better. But I have been getting great results testing fennel in my indoor farm, but I don't have enough headspace. I don't have enough vertical. It gets too big and it gets up in the lights. Uh, and also it needs bigger than a two-inch net pot. So fennel... Cucumber. I'm definitely going to put in some crack key cucumbers uh, really soon. The heat's coming, and they love that. So I'm kind of looking forward to that because I tend to have some issues with my cucumbers. They do really great, and then they get diseases. And I'm wondering if we might be able to knock that down. Another plant that I'm really excited about possibly growing this year uh, in hydro is mouse melon, which is in the cucumber family. But they're little bitty. They're actually called Mexican sour gherkins. And kids love them. They look like little watermelons. They're like, like little striped watermelons. They're crunchy. They have a cucumber flavor, but not really. Uh, they're very good in salads. They're very good uh, lacto-fermented. They're awesome lacto-fermented as a garnish to a martini. They're really cool that way. Um, and they're small, diminutive little plant, but they vine. And I was looking at this tomato system going, they don't have a huge root system. Uh, they like to climb up things. They wouldn't really interfere with the tomatoes. I could just pop in another set of net cups, and poop, in goes the mouse melons. So we might grow mouse melons with the cucumber, with the, uh, the the tomato system, and then basil for research. What the heck, basil for research? Yeah, um, I don't have any problems growing basil. I can grow basil until I don't know what to do with it. Um, but There's so many varieties of basil, and you get such quick, high-quality results with hydroponics that I'm going to be trialing a bunch of different types of basil. The other thing that I'm really interested in is starting to do more development on timing. So if I want 25 basils to full size to put in micro-CSA boxes, when do I plant them? What do they look like? when they're harvested, so I can get a schedule. And I think basil's like one of those crops that if you're doing a micro CSA, if you put it in their people's boxes, no one's going to be like, stupid basil, I don't want basil. I think people love fresh basil. And one of the things that I know, if you guys want to do anything commercial, and again, I'm not sure that I do, I just kind of want to get numbers and, and understand the possibilities here. When it comes to marketing, one of the strongest senses is smell. When people smell something that smells good, it anchors them to it. Uh, many years ago, it was, BM, it was either BMW or Mercedes at a huge car show in Europe. They had business cards at their car show. Take a business card. Everybody takes a business The business cards were impregnated with the smell of cinnamon. If you picked it up, it smelled like cinnamon. You smelled it. Hours later, your fingers smelled like cinnamon. I didn't even go, and here I sit telling you this story. Every, I, I've met three people who were at that car show, and as soon as you say, this, this, hey, I heard about this cinnamon thing with being, oh, yeah, yeah. My old partner, Neil's the, Neil's the one that told me about it initially, but everybody that, that's been there is like, oh, yeah, and they start talking about it because we get anchored by smells. When you're putting something together that is going to be a commercial product, especially like a food box, a vegetable box, 
you want something in there that when people pick it up, they, they oh, and they like when they talk to their friend, like smell this, like you want that. So basil's like a, an anchor crop into anything like that. So I want to do some research with it. And then I had something for you that I wanted to throw here in at the end. That's just a sim simple observation. I was outside today and I was filling up. I use these 21 gallon um, concrete trays. You get them at Home Depot and Lowe's. They're like 10 bucks. And I've gone to them instead of the kiddie pools for the ducks to bathe in. The main reason I'm able to do that now is I don't have 150 ducks. I got 20 odd ducks. 20 odd ducks, four or three of those things, that's enough. If I, if I was using those for 150 ducks, I'd need like 20 of them. It's just too much work to fill them all up. But I was like, you know, I, I start setting them near some of my fruit trees, and, you know, the ducks come and they poop in the water, and then the next day you dump about it. About half the water remains because they, they drink it, they spray it around, they what have you. So you dump these you know, 10 gallons of water on this fruit tree, and I'm like, you're a dummy. Like, my little mini orchard that I have that's pretty much hard to manage right now, if I would have went down there and just said, I'm going to put 24 trees here, and just spaced them out in conventional spacing, and just sheet mulch the hell out of the place. You know, like, brought it up like six, eight inches of mulch for that square. No irrigation. Just one water pipe out there. At least you have 24 of them. So then you have four duck pans. Every six days, a tree gets watered with, with 10 gallons of duck water. If you need, if in the summer you get to where, like, hey, you know, I need to be doing more than this, you go to six in every four days. And you just, no matter where you send your ducks for the day, you have their water station at your orchard, and you have a pattern. And that way, once you have a pattern set, if you have a property sitter, you can say, the water's there today, move it to those four trees tomorrow, then move it back to that row, then there, then there, then there, then bring it back here. You can draw that on a piece of paper. Do you understand it? Oh, yes, I'm be sure you understand it. Yeah, okay. There you go. And now your trees get watered. They get fertility. And if you ever got to a point where you looked like you had too much fertility, reduce your number of pans. And that will reduce your watering frequency and reduce your fertility. Really, really simple. And then just keep sheet mulching. Just keep sheet mulching. And if you get to a point where, you know, it's maybe too much in one spot, expand your orchard. Put in another six trees. And I look at that and go, that prop, that piece of my property out there, it's exactly what I should have done with it. It's precisely what I should have done with it. No little hoogle mounds, no digging stuff up. All it should have been was a big, flat square with a pattern. Now, I didn't have ducks yet. I'd barely gotten chickens. I didn't know what I know now. But now I do know what I know now. So a lot of you have gotten on board the duck train, quack, quack, because ducks are cool. Man, I'm telling you, That pattern, that simplicity, because what it will do is force you to water those trees year-round, and the trees can handle just about as much as you give them. Unless they're in a place where you're going to make a swamp or something like that, and then make sure you're planting your trees right. Biggest mistake I see people make with trees, this is from Howard Garrett, they plant them too deep. A lot of people are like, you don't want to plant below the graft, if it's a grafted tree. If you're anywhere near that graft, you're too deep. The tree, If you got the tree in a pot it probably came planted in the pot too deep where the roots flare out so you, you your tree comes down like a telephone pole and then the roots flare out you want the tops of the biggest roots above grade you don't want them covered by dirt you want to be able to see the flare at least a couple inches out from the tree your trees will grow so much healthier that way usually what i end up doing pull the tree out and i get a wash tub 
fill it with water, and I soak the tree in. I get as much dirt off, spray as much dirt off. Any circling roots I cut or pull out, but I make sure I find the crown of the tree and get the crown of the tree above grade. Do that, everything. You do that, plus what I just said, I think you can have an orchard just about anywhere. I think you can have an orchard in the desert. Maybe you need more ducks or more duck pans, but I think you can have an orchard in the desert that way. You might want to play with a little bit of micro-earthwork so that when you dump the water, it kind of is contained around the tree. But I would say that the thing about that is it makes it harder to mow in between the trees. And I think you want to space your trees so your mowers fit through, and there you go. That's the easiest permaculture orchard I can come up with. Final thoughts. Remember, we talked a lot about COVID today, a little bit about what I'm doing. I'm trying to continually share what I'm doing here. I'm doing, I think I've done more work since the COVID pandemic started on my property than I have in twice the time prior to it. And it's because I see this as an opportunity. Now, it's not an opportunity for me. The reason it's an opportunity for some of y'all. I'm not suddenly forced to work from home. I've been working from home for nine and a half, ten years with this podcast now. I've been working from home at this location for seven This really ignited something in me. And I feel in some ways it really helped a resurgence of the show itself as well. Um, I, when this all really became clear what it was going to be, realized that there was, there was something that needed to be done in all this, and it wasn't screaming hysterically. It wasn't telling you the world was going to end. It wasn't saying, see, see, this is why you're supposed to be a prepper. It was setting an example. And the example I've been trying to set is take care of yourself, be smart, and get shit done. Don't stop getting shit done just because this happened. There's always something that can take you out. I, I think I may have said a, a thousand times on a show or more that you know you get hit by a gravel truck tomorrow. There's a place for some level of fatalism. I remember old people when I was a kid, where I grew up, All these families that lived on the street that my grandparents lived on, they all were from the Ukraine. And all their families came from the Ukraine about the same time, right about the turn of the last century. So the 1900s. And um, it was like family even when you weren't family. I mean, they all came from the same village in the Ukraine. And they all settled in this one spot. And this, this one family lived up the top of the hill. I would go talk to them, and they were in their 90s. They had lived very long very fruitful lives, you know, their kids were old, as far as I was, really old, as far as, I, you know, 30 is old when you're a kid, and, uh, but I would walk up and see them, and they would walk around, and there, one had, a, she had a, a beautiful raspberry canes, and I'd pick those, and take them up to Buddy Shoemaker, and Buddy Shoemaker would make wine, and I'd bring them back down to her, and I remember one day, she said, you know, you want uh, lemonade, or iced tea, or something like that, yes, we go in the house, and she pours me and my sister some tea, and or lemonade, whatever it was. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she just says, yeah, well, I'll be dead soon. It's important you know that. I said, what? She's like, I'm 91. You know, and she believed she was going to go to heaven. You know, and she had a, a peace in that. And the reason she even brought it up with these two kids that she wasn't even related to were, she realized, like, we valued her. And then she knew, like, like I'm 91. I'm not going to live to be 120. And she was, for a 91-year-old, this lady was... Healthy. Her husband, I think, was like 80, 88 or 89. He was right about her age, a little bit younger. And, and he seemed pretty good. And they both, and they both said eventually, yeah, well, you know, we're reaching the end here. They weren't trying to cling to every last minute of life. They had accepted like 90. 
especially 90 in 1985. Really, like, and I think this fear that we have that I could die, you, life is a risk. Life is a risk. So how about this? Let's say you are going to get COVID and you are going to die. Let's say that is going to happen to you. You're one of the unlucky ones. So your last three months are set, spent hiding in your home, not getting anything done, worried, stressed out. That might be why you died, because you don't get any sunlight, you don't get any exercise, and you're mentally screwed up, and you're physically screwed up, and then you have to get COVID on top of all that, and those are all aggravating factors, and you die. But if something happens to me, I'm going to be able to say, you know what, I spent the, my, my, my last months or last weeks or whatever they were doing what I always taught people to do. Hugging my grandkids, not being afraid of my grandchildren. Guys, there's places that people live that the risk is higher, and maybe you need to handle things a little bit differently, but you still need to get something done. You still need to be active. You still need to be energetic. You still need to be doing things. And some people have real serious secondary underlying risks. Number one, work on, if it's lifestyle, whatever you can do to change that. But two, if it's just there and there's nothing you can do about it, then, then you have to take extra precautions. But you can still do something. You can still be in the right state mentally. I just saw a meme, and it, it said, you know, you can tell people in how they react to the pandemic by what their past is. And it showed a picture of Kermit the Frog with a remote control with a big smile watching TV, and it said felons. People that have been to prison. Yeah, home watching TV. And then the next one, it said military veterans. And Kermit the Frog looked the same way. And it said everybody else, and like Kermit the Frog is laid out on the ground like he's dying. You know? And I think there's something to that. I, I don't think you should be spending most of this time watching TV and binging Netflix. I mean, do that where and where as you, as you as, as makes sense. But there's an attitude there. This ain't so bad. This ain't, I mean, I think back to when I was in Honduras. I slept in a tent with seven other stinking guys. For almost seven months, so six and a half months, six months, three weeks, something like that. We had a plywood floor, which we were grateful for because the regular floor was just dirt that was like talcum powder. We all slept on cots. We were on about a four-acre camp. It was surrounded by Constantina wire. We weren't allowed to leave except just just barely out the front gate to a little soda stand, and that was refreshing. And unless we were working on the road or something and had to go somewhere to the other camp, the National Guard camp it was ten miles away, and we're building this road, and we were there for almost seven months. That's as close as I've ever been to being in jail. It was like, I'm telling you right now, if you built a rehabilitation prison model on that deployment, and that's how prisoners were going to live, and it was like, media, like uh, what do you call minimum security, where you weren't, like people were like, like, if you, look, this is as good as it gets, and if you, 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 it's pretty easy to escape, but if you escape and we catch you, you're going to the real pen. And you taught like construction skills, mechanical skills, and stuff like that. And, and people were like, oh, that's too easy. Anybody that went and looked at it would have said, no, that's jail. Okay, I'm all right with that. Get an MRE for lunch every day. You get uh, a hot meal for dinner and uh, crappy breakfast. And you live in a tent and you get no air conditioning. And uh, yeah, okay, that's prison. So when I look at my life today versus my life then, I'm like, well, You know, I'm not happy about everything, but I have total freedom to develop myself as a person, as a podcaster, 
as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a writer, as a content creator. I have every opportunity to do that today. So I'm going to make the most of it. And that may be not what it is for you, but what is it? Find something and get it done. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another, well, I'm just going to wrap up, huh? <laughs> I just felt like a wrap-up moment. Hey, before I do wrap up, let me remind you that you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Remember, no matter what you buy, if you shop through tspaz.com, you do help support the show and the work that we do. Uh, today's item of the day is Master Blend Hydroponic Fertilizer. I talk about hydroponics a lot today. And I would just say, if you want to start doing hydro, there's a lot of different fertilizers and nutrients and inoculations and things you can do. This is the place to start. It's a three-part system. Um, it is incredibly economical. It's incredibly easy to use. Uh, you do need a scale, but as long as you follow the recipe, you don't even need a meter. You don't really need to check this stuff. Uh, I tend to, but I've gotten to the point where I'm so confident after checking it so many times, like, Okay, so I'm doing flowering and fruiting plants, three grams of calcium nitrate and three grams of master blend and two grams of Epsom salt. If I test it, it's, that's what it's, it's going to be what it is. What would I do any differently? And it just works. And it's, again, it's incredibly economical. You can see the write-up today uh, at the website. Again, master blend hydroponic fertilizer. But no matter what you're buying, just start your online shopping at tspaz.com. You help support the show and the work that we do. So that brings us to actually wrapping up this time and our song of the day today, which I'll be quick with. Um, the song of the day is You've Got a Friend by Carol King. This is an old song, been around forever. Um, and it's a song about being there for people. And I, I don't think we need to say a lot about that right now. This is a good time to be there for people. Uh, make sure as you are getting shit done in your own life and as you are making the best of this time, that you're also looking out and saying, who can, you, who can I help? You know, check on your neighbors and things like that. We've checked on our neighbor quite a bit. She hasn't really needed anything, but um, given the situation she's in, her husband's in really poor health, and he's not much help in the best of times around their house. And I think just knowing that, like, if you need something, let us know. She had somebody actually cut through her yard recently, and I'm like, Call me, I will handle it. Because she was worried about, you know, theft and stuff like that. I, I will handle it. There's a gate between my house and your house. As long as I know that you know that I'm the one, to, I will handle the problem for you. Like, take care of your neighbors. Uh, we have a, a little mission church down the, the road from us here. Just, you know, it's not even a block. It's walking distance. Now, they put out a thing called the Blessing Box. If you have extra food, just put it in the Blessing Box. If you need food, come get it. And funny enough, it's not being robbed. Isn't that crazy? People are using it. People are contributing to it. It's not being like hijacked and all the food taken out of it. People are actually helping each other. The, the, the reality is, times like we're in now, people will say it brings out the worst in people or it brings out the best in people. Both of those statements are sort of true, but they miss the actual truth. Times like this... Show us who people really are. If they're really good people, you see more of that. If they're meh people, you see pretty much nothing. And if they're really bad people, you see more of that. Well, when it comes to the people around you, do your best to be a friend. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. When you're down and troubled and you need some 
Take your.